we've been working our way through Mark, and we're at Mark 11, starting in verse 27 this morning. Just to remind you where we're at, we're in Jerusalem. This is the end. Uh, not this very moment we're reading, but uh, this is the last week of Jesus' life, and he's arrived at the beginning of chapter 11 in the triumphal entry, and, uh, and then the next day, on Monday morning, he causes a ruckus in the temple, and this is the following day. So this is probably Tuesday morning. Starting uh, again, Mark 11, starting verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temp- as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, with so many uh, different perspectives floating around us on how, on who God is, how we can know him, um, what the divine might be, it's in God's word that we really find out. So let's pray that he would teach us by it. Father, we need you to speak by your word, because if we're left to our own devices, who knows what we'll come up with. But you have spoken. So help us to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we, we started off by noting that really, after, immediately after the triumphal entry, at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus engages for the next several chapters 
really the early part of this week, in a sustained attack on false religion. So last week we thought about fruitless religion and uh, the ways in which uh, Israel had bought into a kind of false worship, a worship that was focused on their holiness, that, whose faith was directed elsewhere. And so it's worth ask, asking ourselves, what do we even mean when we talk about religion? Are we just talking about, you know, formal uh, traditions? Uh, and that's a, actually a vexing question. <laughs> it's really hard to define religion, because if you try to figure out what on earth makes Buddhism like Christianity, there's not a whole lot. Uh, you, you find out this is a pretty difficult question to answer, but what we're generally talking about is something that gives you meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging in the world, a sense of direction. But of course, that can apply to a whole lot of things, can it? So a few years ago at Harvard Divinity School, they hosted the CEO of CrossFit, and he actually admitted, yeah, we're, we're kind of a religion. This is literally what he said. He said, we're saving lives, and we've saved a lot of them. Of course, he's not talking about from judgment. He's talking about from um, the couch, which uh, is slightly less ambitious, just a little bit. But we, uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor talks about in his fantastic and unbelievably long book, A Secular Age, uh, the nova effect of the modern world, that since we have a lot less confidence in what is transcendent, it has, the religious impulse hasn't gone away. It has just splintered into a million and often very individualized directions. And so we talk about, a lot of folks talk about being spiritual, but not religious. Even many who are formally, who formally would describe themselves as a Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever, uh, are still unafraid to kind of pick and choose what tenets of the faith they hold dear uh, what they might add from elsewhere. And of course, we add all these sort of other things as well uh, to our religious identity, to, to the things that give us meaning and purpose and belonging in life, uh, whether that's your work or maybe your leisure. We can even really narrow that into your food, how you eat it, um, what you enjoy. There's, of course, politics and money and our sexual proclivities. There is parenting and romance. All these things that we look for to give us meaning and we all sort of associate them in different ways. So the poet Christian Wyman recently wrote a, a poem uh, called All My Friends Are Finding New Beliefs. Uh, let's read you a little part of it. All my friends are finding new beliefs. This one converts to Catholicism and this one to trees. Paleo Keto Zone, South Beach Bourbon, exercise regimens so extreme she merges with machine, priesthoods and beasthoods, sombers and glees, high-styled renunciations and avocations of dirt, sobrieties, satieties, pilgrimages to the very bowels of being. All my friends are finding new beliefs, and I'm finding it harder and harder to keep track of the new gods and the new loves, and the old gods and the old loves. What I'm interested in this morning, what I think Jesus is driving at in these passages, is what makes religion powerful. 
See, of the through line in all of our various ways of approaching is always what we perceive to change our lives, to really affect us. And these are increasingly subjective self-perceptions, aren't they? And the problem isn't the subjective part. The problem isn't that we don't need somehow to actually connect with it. Indeed, it's a terrible thing to agree with everything, you know, that Christianity says, but feel like God's a million miles away. But rather, that, that when that's all that we have, it's pretty shaky. Are we really going, really content to define our whole purpose in life, our sense of meaning in the world, merely on what is working for me right now? That's pretty thin ice. And what if I change? What if my circumstances change? So what we see contrasted in this passage is powerless religion and powerful religion. And they're contrasted in three different ways, on how they view authority, on how they judge, and how they view grace. Authority, judgment, and grace. This is what, on these three things, we see powerless and powerful religion distinguished. Now, the authority piece is probably the most obvious, right? It's the, it's the end of chapter 11 here. And uh, remember, Jesus has just cleared out the temple, and he shows back up at the temple. So the guys who are the authorities, the, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, decide they've got to confront Jesus. They certainly don't want to relive what just happened the day before. So they're going to confront Jesus and they say, on whose authority do you do this? It's not a terrible question, actually. Right? I mean, Jesus is making big claims. They want to know why they should believe it, why they should trust him. What's funny about it uh, is that, of course, Jesus sees how th- <laughs> exactly what they're trying to do. Right? You see, they want to trap him. If he, if he says he has divine authority, then he's open to the accusation of blasphemy. Although, of course, he does have a divine authority. But if he says that it's, a, you know it's anything else, then he's open to the accusation of being a false prophet because he's doing this in God's name. So Jesus, who does not care if he actually gives them an answer, says, I'll make you a deal. I'll answer your question if you'll answer one of mine. And he turns around the question uh, around John the Baptist. Now, this is way back at the beginning of Mark. Uh, Plenty of you will know the story, right? But John the Baptist came before Jesus and had a message of repentance. And the religious leaders did not listen. There was no reform movement that came out of it. Nothing. Even though he was wildly popular with the people. And all the people thought he was a prophet. So while Jesus doesn't care about giving an answer, these guys who are the authorities... Like, no, they have to give an answer because they're the ones who are concerned about the public's opinion. 
They're the ones who are deeply invested in everybody trusting them. And they can't give an answer because it's the same conundrum, right? Like if we, you know, if it was from God, then we didn't do anything about it. We didn't listen. If, it was, if it's from man, you know, if, it's, if it was his own as invention, then we're going to lose the people. And they're stuck. And all they can say is, oh, we don't know. We have no idea. You see, this is, a, this is a hallmark of powerless religion, is that it is obsessed with its own positional authority. Uh, I think a good example, it may not necessarily be religious, but a good example of people obsessed with their positional authority is like uh, every ranking commander you've ever seen in every military movie. Uh, they always have to, at some point, pull rank. Like, assert, like, I'm the captain. You know, there's, uh, if you've ever seen Crimson Tide, this is a submarine movie, right? Like, at one point, the Gene Hackman character is having to yell at his executive officer and the chief of the boat about how he's the captain. Uh, now, when I was in the military, I almost never saw anybody actually pull rank. Uh, first thing, because it's silly when everybody in the room knows but second, the, the, one, the, the handful of times I ever saw somebody do that, they only did that because they had already lost credibility. The time, you, the time you're leaning on your positional authority is when people already don't really trust you. That's exactly what's going on here. You see, they're obsessed with maintaining their status with being honored rightly. And the Bible does tell us to honor rightful authorities. But it's, it's funny, elsewhere Jesus says, uh, you know, the, all those folks who are the scribes, you should listen to them because they have a position of authority, but you shouldn't do what they do. In other words, you should show honor, but you should recognize that they're hypocrites. So, one of the telltale, telltale signs here is that you're defending your authority. And that authority could be, you know, a formal position. I mean, I say that as somebody who has a formal position in this church. Um, it, can be, it can be a formal position. It can also be a, an informal and recognized one. I mean, the evangelical world, for example, is filled with lots of people who are considered authorities that don't have positional authority. They just sell a lot of books or have some social media presence or write a blog or whatever and, and can assert that. I mean, even a, within the last few weeks, I mean, a report came out about one famous evangelist apologist who had been leveraging his position to abuse people. So they're concerned with maintaining that status. And so there's a disdain, a hate for anybody who differentiates themselves from them. This is a sure sign of a real powerless religion, is if you cannot tolerate anyone differing from you, especially if you're, when you're in authority. I mean, this could be a parent with a child. This can certainly be within an organization, the church. There's a lot of this that happens. And I'm not saying that there aren't differences we don't need to really consider. Consider. 
real challenges that need to be answered. The telltale sign is not that you have to answer them, it's the panic. It is the vitriol that comes out that's the sign. That somebody feels like they've got to reassert their power. In other words, these religious leaders are doing exactly what Jesus had talked about back in Mark 10 when he said, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it should not be so among you. The religious leaders look exactly like what Jesus was describing. And by contrast is Jesus. Because the way that Jesus exercises authority is not by constantly reminding everybody about how important he is. In fact, a key theme in the early half of, of Mark, the first half of Mark, was that Jesus kept trying to quiet people down who figured out who he was. The demons were, were declaring that he was the son of the Holy One. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, be quiet. He keeps telling people that he's healed. Don't, don't be telling people about all this. He keeps trying to keep that quiet. His identity. He doesn't want people talking about him as the Messiah early on. Jesus doesn't go around being like, you, you know who I am, right? Son of God and son of man, you know. Uh, fully God, fully man. It's a mystery. You'll figure it out one day. But that's who I am. You know, he doesn't, still haven't really figured it out. We've formulated it, but, you know, but still a mystery. Um, he doesn't go around saying that, right? Instead... His authority is proven by how he treats others in his healing, in his gentleness and kindness towards the least of these. But this is the way Jesus exercises his authority because Jesus is not threatened. He knows who he is. Whatever the religious th leaders think about him doesn't threaten his identity. Jesus lives out, again, when in, back in Mark 10, where he continued saying, don't lead like the Gentiles do, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is living out exactly what he taught. And this is the kind of authority that we can have, that's rest in him, that is not concerned to make sure everybody thinks we are the best, or we're the greatest, or we're the wisest, but rather leaning in confidence on the identity we have in Jesus. We can do what it takes to love others. Realizing, yes, we're probably going to be misunderstood, at least some of the time. But our confidence is not in being recognized as the authority. Our authority comes from Jesus. We see a difference as well in how they judge. And this gets into the parable in chapter 12. So right on the heels of this question about his authority, Jesus tells a parable. And like most of Jesus' parables, it's got a bite to it. In a big way. 
Because last week we had seen the, the fig tree, which was a metaphor for Israel, and how Jesus kind of enacted a parable by cursing a fig tree. Here, he takes another metaphor of Israel, the vineyard. It shows up a bunch of places, but Isaiah 5 is probably the most well-known place. Uh, Isaiah 5 begins, Let me sing of my beloved, my, my love song concerning his vineyard. But it's about how they ruined the vineyard. And then by verse 7, says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when Jesus starts telling a parable about a vineyard, a vineyard that's been prepared, everybody knows exactly what they're talking about. Everybody's on board. All right, you're talking about us. Yeah, you know, it comments at the end that the, that the leaders perceive that Jesus told this parable about them. It's like, yeah, no joke. Like, it, was, it couldn't have been more obvious. This is you. But the way the parable unfolds is obviously upsetting to them. Because it's the same parable, essentially, that Isaiah told. The story hasn't changed. They have ruined the vineyard of Jesus, of God. But the way that Jesus tells this is by talking about all these different servants that have come. Again, this is terminology that will be really obvious to those that know the Old Testament and the prophets because the prophets are routinely referred to as my servants, the prophets. God says that over and over and over again. My servants, the prophets. And Jesus is describing the way in which those who were in authority, many of the kings and the priests and then the false prophets, treated the real prophets. And in fact, and many of them were killed or mistreated. So everybody's tracking with the story. They know what it sounds like. They recognize the story. But of course, they thought they were different. They thought they had changed. And then Jesus gets to verses 6 through 8 and talks about the son of the landowner. Here, the Old Testament map, uh, well, you've reached the edge of the map. <laughs> We've gone off the grid. I don't know what his hearers thought they were ta- he was talking about, but the message is clear, right? At the, or at least where the story is going is clear. That God sends his son. And they reject him, kill him. With what has to be, commentators debate about this, how harebrained the scheme is. Uh, There's a possibility that if somebody owns land but others had been working on it and there's no heir for it, you know, when that guy dies, that those who were working the land could, it could be divided amongst them. They might take ownership of it. Though it seems like it's a pretty, pretty obscure thing. <laughs> uh, not super likely. But there, it doesn't really matter in terms of how, what the odds were in real life. Right? This, this is the story. This is, the, as Jesus tells the story, this is it. And in fact, maybe if it is kind of a wild idea, really improbable, maybe that just makes the point even more pointed. Of what a bad scheme this really is. 
to try to destroy the son in hopes that you would inherit it. And so it becomes a parable about judgment. Because what is the owner going to do? He's going to destroy it or destroy them and give it away. There's a weird, there's something weird going on. The, the, those who are working the land think they can assert the right to judge all these different servants that have come along and even the son to be judge, jury, and executioner. But with time, of course, the landowner will assert his right. This is hard, but like everything about judgment in the Bible, it is not about some abstract idea of whether we like God as judge or not, but the fact that we actually inhabit a world of evil. A world that was made good, but that we have turned. We have ruined. A world in which people really hurt and sin against one another. And so a hallmark of powerless religion is it thinks it has the right to judge swiftly and on its own terms. Just like those who were working the land. They thought they could do that. And there's something about how quick they come to that decision that's disturbing. Of course, it's connected to their insecurity uh, about their place in the world. But it is also the stuff of foolishness. And I don't just mean silly. I mean the kind of foolishness that has real repercussions. We're warned all over the Proverbs to be slow to speak. Slow to pass judgment. But we live in a world which we're encouraged to be quick to judgment. To be quick to cast the first stone. You know, whether this is kind of your life on social media, uh, we're encouraged to quickly speak on whatever is happening. We're encouraged to quickly make up our minds about everything that happens around us. But that's not the path of wisdom. Indeed, even if something has happened to you, it will take, it usually takes time to figure out what has really gone on. Whatever your quick judgments are, they often go astray. Of course, we do this individually. We also do this collectively. There's a, there's a temptation for organizations to simply make a swift judgment rather than to take a thoughtful approach to ask the deep questions of what has gone on. Why has this been allowed to happen? Now, the fear is that with time, we lose focus. That we forget. That we will lack moral clarity. Indeed, I mean, that is a practical danger. There's a reason why we love to jump on whatever is in the news or whatever is 
happening that has people's attention right now. But we do that in a way that is dangerous and to our detriment. I'm not saying you can't share your opinions on social media. I am saying take a beat. I'm not saying you can't express your thoughts to your friends and family. I'm saying take a second. Powerful religion, by contrast, recognizes that it is the Lord who judges. And even when, and it is certainly necessary, I mean, I'm a minister after all, even when we do have to make judgments, we recognize that it is, it is uh, imperfect. That even when we're trying to do our best, there are things we will not completely understand. I don't have access inside anybody's head, after all. But we're always leaning on the clarity that the one who is the judge gives. And no amount of authority that the church, for example, tries to take on itself can give assurance that it's going to be perfect every time. But we do know the judge who takes everything into account and who knows better than we do. Again, it ought to teach us not to jump into simple solutions like scapegoating. It ought to teach us transparency. But powerful religion does not try to make itself judge, jury, and executioner. It knows that that belongs to the Lord. And powerful and powerless religion differ on one third thing grace. This is hard to see in this passage. But notice at the end, Jesus takes a strange turn in verse 10. He has said that the owner will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus goes back to Psalm 118, which is the same psalm that the people were singing during his triumphal entry. It was understood to be a psalm about the rightful king, about King David himself even. Um, and Jesus is saying, I'm like that. And while the parable itself leads to judgment, Jesus stops at the end, to consider his own role as the stone that the builders rejected. In other words, this parable 
fork in the road at the end. There is, a gen- there is, of course, a judgment. But what if that son were judged in their place? This is, of course, the gospel. I'll admit, very oddly, <laughs> uh, introduced back at the end of this parable, but this is the good news, that Jesus is the stone that was rejected on our behalf. And he is building something new, something profound. He is repopulating that vineyard with others. It is, it is the strangest thing. I mean, they're sitting there thinking, we've got to destroy him. They're, they're playing out the very parable Jesus has told them about. They don't recognize that it's, they recognize it's about, that he's saying it about them, but they don't realize that they're inevitably bringing that very ending that they may not totally understand about the son into fruition. But Jesus introduces the idea at the end, though, that you might do something in that that you don't understand. That it might become the very path of redemption. The Lord's doing something that is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was rejected for us. The way that the Gospel of John puts it is he came to his own and his own did not know him. They didn't recognize him. But he came full of grace and truth so that even some of those who rejected him come to him. And it is a telltale sign of our age that we have very little room for grace. In religious communities, this is probably obvious. Um, If you hurt sort of the image we're trying to keep, we kick you out. Uh, We have very little room for restoring people. And strangely enough, some of the worst offenders are the people who end up being the ones to accept it back. It is a bizarre thing that in the religious community we have such a hard time understanding grace. In the community of Jesus. Now I'm not saying, this caveat is so important, that there isn't a path of repentance. And that some paths of repentance aren't long. They may be. But is there a path for someone to repent? Or are they dead to us? In in kind of the irreligious world, there is just as much rejection. We may use the language of uh, being accepting. It may be different issues that get you thrown out. But if you're on the wrong side of various issues, you are no longer acceptable. 
we have returned, in other words, into a shame culture. We have become a kind of shame culture, and once you have violated the rules, and they may be different in the religious or an irreligious community, but once you've violated the rules, you're out. You're gone. There's no way back. The powerful religion, the religion of Jesus, is full of grace. See, the, the very reason we're not, uh, we don't have to be threatened about authority, the very reason we don't have to be the one who is the final judge, jury, and executioner is because we know that we have been given grace. We know that this is how God deals with us. It, it begins by recognizing the very beginning of the gospel is that I am deeply flawed. That if I'm going to start relying on myself, it's not going to go well. See, the difference in the gospel is not whether you choose to be good or bad. It's whether you decide to trust in yourself or to entrust yourself to someone else. The difference is not whether you're being a good person or a bad person, but whether you accept that Jesus was good enough for you. And you can choose to go the other way. But that is a dangerous path and one that always leads to a bad end. It's been a difficult year. I'm sure we've all felt that in very different ways. Uh, some of you have loads of anxiety. Do you remember when we didn't really know how the coronavirus was spread? And it was just like, we're wiping down your Amazon boxes and wiping down your groceries. I had no idea. Some of us have had a mounting, slow mounting stress because we're just stuck at home. And when you're just stuck at home, whether that's alone or whether that's with your spouse and your family, and that's all you see, right? It's like every day, the dial's like creeping up a little bit, right? Everybody needs a little space. Freaking out over here. We're frustrated with each other. And what the Bible calls us into is grace. A recognition. Not that the anxiety or the stress isn't real, but that we have an option to treat others differently. An option to recognize that, of course, they're not perfect. Of course, I shouldn't respond to them exactly as they deserve. Again, I'm not saying there isn't a place for judgment. There is a place for judgment in people's lives. But grace teaches us to see others differently. Grace even teaches us to see ourselves differently. That, of course, we're messed up. Like, that's a given. That is the starting point. But it is never the end point. If you need to 
understand the grace of God more deeply. And we all do. Whether that's how you handle yourself, whether that's how you deal with others around you, the only way, the only way to grow in that is to go back to the source. The only way is to tap back in to Jesus, to consider how undeserving we are. But never stopping there. And rather considering how profound God's love is for us. Considering how much Jesus has given for us. You see, there is in powerful, this is the, this is the thing that's important to see. There is in powerful religion a kind of weakness. It is a weakness in ourselves. Coming to understand that in and of ourselves, we don't have a leg to stand on for our own authority. We don't really have the right to be judge, jury, and executioner. But if we are in Jesus, then the last word is never our screw-up. The last word is always his perfect righteousness, his goodness, his blood given on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we need, we need grace to deal with one another. We need grace to look in the mirror. We need to know more deeply what Jesus has done for us. So by your Spirit, remind us. Bring us back to your word and show us all that Jesus has done. All that he is, do, is doing is powerful to do and we'll finally finish. Teach us to see that Jesus is our life and give us grace to move out towards one another with confidence not in who we are, but who you are and what Jesus has done. I ask all this in his name. Amen.